Hey, I'm Dorothy from Redlands, California. Hey, I'm Jared from Minneapolis. Hey, this is Robert from Washington, D.C. The Sound of Young America is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Do it. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jordan Morris, in for Jesse Thorne. Before I talk to Bruce Campbell, let's hear a clip from The Fall of Sam Axe, a spinoff of the TV show Burn Notice. This movie follows Campbell's character, Sam Axe, on his last mission as a Navy SEAL. Here he is being briefed by a commanding officer. So I check my docket for an assignment that would get you out of my sight for the foreseeable future. And I think I found just the thing. Ah, not Siberia, please, not Siberia. You're going to Columbia tonight. Oh, sir, with all due respect, I need to pack, sir, and well, uh... Are you refusing orders? No, sir, no, sir, of course not. It's just that I, well, it's been a while, sir, and, of course, uh, for a mission to South America, I should really brush up on my Spanish. Well, you got a 12-hour plane ride, so... Brush up, amigo. This is The Sound of Young America. I'm Jordan Morris. My guest today is Bruce Campbell, a actor, director, and author best known to film geeks, anyways, as the star of the cult classics Evil Dead, Maniac Cop, Bubba Hotep, too many to mention. He can now be seen on the television program Burn Notice, the hit television program, I should say, and uh, the Burn Notice feature-length film, The Fall of Sam Axe, is on DVD and Blu-ray now. Bruce, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Great plug, by the way. Great plug. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I was practicing in the mirror. And thank you for saying hit show. <laughs> yes, I just I wanted people to know. Any any actor can be in a show, but it's a rarefied air to go, oh yeah, it's my hit show. <laughs> because you don't get that very often. I've been in so many canceled shows, it's it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately I realized that when I'm the star of the show, it only lasts one season. When I'm like third fiddle, it'll run forever. Well, I, I look forward to, to, to future background fiddling by you. You, you background Indeed. fiddle well. I, I'm usually over the star's left shoulder or right shoulder. <laughs> um, so, uh, Bruce, um, I, I think you are kind of best known for films and projects that are very genre-specific, that are kind of outrageous, they're, they're campy, humor plays a big part. Sometimes ridiculous, sometimes unwatchable. <laughs> Um, was this the kind of stuff you were into as a kid? <laughs> Boy, that's really a trick question. No, not really. No. Um, I was into like Zorro, adventure, more straight up adventure, like a guy with a cape and a sword. That was kind of, I ran around my yard with a stick and a cape that was made out of something. I have no idea. And I had found a pair of striped pants somewhere. <laughs> okay. And Zorro was on TV at the time because I'm middle-aged man Zorro was on he was on television as a hero old black and white old old black and white tv show and um that's more what i kind of wanted to do but it all falls under the same ball of wax of why not play a mad scientist or why not play elvis presley with cancer on your penis you know why not play some of these weird weird roles because it just make keeps it interesting you know we get bored easy we're fickle creatures actors uh, sure, Ed. When you were growing up, kind of running around the yard in striped pants with a yeah. stick sword and a towel, was this 
uh, something. Now, don't that, say that mockingly when you recap that. Just, I mean, it was in my childhood we're talking about. I'm sorry if any any kind of tone creeped into my voice. Okay. It was not intended. Yeah. Not intended, okay. Bruce. All right. I uh, didn't know if that was the sound of Young America or not, <laughs> or whatever. No, no. The sound of Young America is not mocking, Bruce. But it's I weird. Unlike you. most actors, I did not have a horrible childhood. Most actors have had miserable childhoods, and they go into acting to hide from their their real life. Um. I had no problem sort of playing in the woods all day. It sort of helped. Uh, people just sort of left me alone. I think I could, I'm going to go back to those woods. Um, so um, was this uh, was getting into acting something that your parents encouraged? Was that something that was being an actor within the realm of possibilities for a young Bruce Campbell? They did not discourage it, but they didn't go, you're such a kooky kid. You should be an actor. So there was no stage mother thing going on. I come from a non-acting background. My grandfather worked for Alcoa Aluminum in Detroit for like 50 years. And then my dad was like, you know, I'd like to be a painter. And then my grandfather went, no, no, you're not going to be a painter. You're going to go to school. You're going to get a job. You're going to start a family. Enough of that artsy crap. So my dad got into advertising and he was sort of a madman. He was, you know, in Detroit. He was a Detroit's version of a madman. He was, a, he was an ad guy in the 60s and 70s, Mr. Swinger Pants. And so, but he, as a diverse, so he got into advertising because he thought that would be a creative outlet, but it wasn't really that creative. It's all, you know, constrained for your clients and things like that. So he got into a local theater group, St. Dunstan's Guild of Cranbrook in uh, suburban Detroit, and he started getting into plays. And these guys were industrious. They did good plays. They did about five, six plays a year. Some of them were these big, splashy musicals outside. They had some outside shows and inside. And I went to see my dad in a play. It was just one of the classic cases. I was about eight. And he was in he was in Brigadoon. And I thought, wow, my, my dad is acting so weird. He's dancing with chicks that are not my mom. What is happening? What's going on here? And the audience is like clapping and laughing. I'm like, I've just seen a different part of my dad. And I like that part. When did you decide to start performing yourself? Not long after that. And finally, my dad directed me in a play there. So I thought, good, it was a cool little closed-loop moment. And uh, were you, when your dad was directing you, did you have that, like, God, Dad, you're so embarrassing feeling? Or was he the coolest Oh, no, guy he knew what he was doing. He, my dad was so funny. By the time he directed this play that I was in, he had directed, like, ten plays. And he had a, his notebook all ready, and he had... He cut his script out and pasted, and he had notes all over the place. And he had an assistant, and he would, like, bark orders to her. And I was like, wow, look at him. Because at home, he's like, hey, hey, what's going on? But at work, I thought, wow, dads he's really focusing up here. Did you, did you dream of going into the theater, or were movies and television always your kind of end game? Movies were not really on the planet. Um, not really, not, not initially. I thought, okay, maybe, yeah, maybe I'll be a theater actor. Because that's how it started. But then, really, my neighborhood, we started getting into the Super 8 movie thing, regular 8 millimeter. Then if you had a lot of money, you could go to Super 8. Uh, and we would experiment. Like, I had a photographer buddy in my neighborhood, Mike Ditz, who, he had a camera, a little Bell and Howell thing. He had to wind it up. And you could do stop motion. You could do frame by frame. So we'd do these things of, like, guys skidding on their butts all over the place, crashing into things, all stop motion. And we would do stuff like that, a lot of gag stuff. And then Sam Raimi, over in his neighborhood, was doing, he was a magician, he would do magic stuff, and he got into amateur movies too. And then another guy, Scott Spiegel, in his neighborhood, had a full-on 
full-fledged setup. I met him in eighth grade. And when I first saw, he said, come on over, I'll show you some of the movies we're working on. I'm like, yeah, whatever. I went over there. It blew me away. They were building sets. They had costumes. I was so jealous. I was like, guys, I have a theater company. I can steal their costumes. You need me. You need me to be in these movies. You need me bad. So I talked my way into their group. And then in high school, all the neighborhoods collided because you all get, you all now go from separate junior high schools to the same high school. So we became a full-on industry in high school. It was really like our weekends were completely booked of like, hey, Scott, what are you doing this weekend? Well, Friday night, I got to do some pickup shots for pies and guys. And then, uh, you know, Saturday, we got to do that. We're going to... Bruce, we, we I never... would actually, I'd like to maybe stop you here. I'd love to hear a description of the film Pies and Guys. Well, Pies and Guys, we, Scott Spiegel worked in a market, a local, the Walnut Lake market for years. And then I weaseled in and got a job there too as a stock boy. We would, we'd have to throw stuff out at the market. If it hit its expiration date, they couldn't legally sell it. But we could shove a pie in somebody's face if it, you know. So they had to throw out numerous pies, all this crap every week. It's amazing the stuff that America has to throw out. We so took advantage of all of it. you were taking the food that was unfit for consumption and yeah. uh, using it, uh, using it yeah. as props. So what? We were young. It doesn't matter. You're not going to be hurt. You spit it out and start yeah. all over again. Sure. So it was more like that. So we combined a bunch of resources um, and got really serious. We never got in trouble as a result. We were just too busy doing stuff we didn't there was no drugs it was no anything no duis we were just if anything the cops would see us they go oh it's you guys because we always had a camera and he, people would call and say oh someone just fell off a parking structure and and if, of course it was just a dummy we were <laughs> experts with dummies we'd throw them <laughs> off of parking structures and film them and uh, the cops would show up and they go well at least you got a better dummy you know this time <laughs> that guy's nuts You. Do you remember some of the plots of these early homemade Super 8 movies? Um, Sam Raimi did one called <clears throat> The Great Bogus Pignut Swindle. The now classic, sure. Yeah, it's a classic. Um, very hard to, uh, to actually watch it because the projector ate most of it in a couple of tragic screenings. Because mm. you're screening your negative. There was none of this hide the negative crap. That In Super 8, that was your negative. So... At parties, that's how you would test. That that was our test screening. Could you hold attention of like drunk or stoned teenagers for like fifteen minutes? And if you could, that was a hit. We would do more like those. So you would show these movies at house parties. Yeah, at high school parties. Was there ever an inkling of like let's get this into a film festival, or did that not even occur to you? Oh no, 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 no. This was this was just because there were cute girls there, and if you made movies, they didn't really know what to think of you. And we always used the jocks as bad guys in the movies because they always had the good-looking girlfriends. So we'd go Tim Quell. He's one of our buddies now. He's been acting with us for years. He was a jock swimmer. Christy Gritton was his girlfriend. Hottest babe on the planet. Are you listening, Christy? So she would <laughs> she would come over with him all the time, and she would play the cute bad girl, and he'd play the bad guy. But it meant we could always have hot babes in the movies, too. So, so where would you have placed yourself in the high school social hierarchy if 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 you were not a if you were not a jock what were you right i wasn't i was not a jock i was not a we had the stoners grease we still had greasers we had stoner we had like the tail end of greasers if you were if you were greasy you were kind of a loser because you were about 10 years out of step but we still had them they were like greaser bathrooms stoner bathrooms uh then there were jocks i was um 
hard to define because I was a thespian. So I was just a little weird. You're like a weirdo. Did you did you kind of dress the part? Were you walking around school in kind of eccentric clothes and loudly proclaiming things in the halls? When I look back, it was a little eccentric, but it was not... Nothing was over the top. It was my dad had a crushed velvet, like a dirt dishwater brown smoking jacket. And it had pockets. I loved it. So I wore that every day. I wore a smoking jacket to high school every day. (laughs) And uh, Montgomery Ward's work pants and uh, janitor shoes because they were comfortable. Bruce, I was a, I'll I'll come clean and say I was actually a drama kid too in high school. And I had a period where I wore bowling shoes to school and carried all of my books in a bowling bag. I think that's pretty awesome. Bowling shoes are great. I'd love to have a pair of bowling shoes. They're like um, two-tone shoes, like saddle shoes. Yeah, Those are yeah. cool shoes. I, I, I thought I was looking good. Uh, looking back, I didn't date much. Well, hey, we didn't either, but we were too busy making Super 8 history. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jordan Morris, in for Jesse Thorne. My guest is the cult icon, Bruce Campbell. So we we joke about the great pignut swindle being a classic, mm-hmm. but a movie you made with Sam Raimi, The Evil Dead, is actually a bona fide classic. Uh, Sam Raimi, of course, went on to direct the uh, Spider-Man movies and, and mm-hmm. uh, many other blockbuster-type films. Um, how did you guys go from making movies to show to stoners at parties to an actual movie that was ready for theaters? Uh, it was a bumpy road. It was a long, bumpy road. Hmm. But it it basically started with high school ending because we went, oh, crap. This is it. The, the the amateur hour is over. We realized we had to kind of take it to the next level. I, I soon after high school, joined a professional theater. So I got a taste of the professional world. Then after that, I started to do production assistant work for commercials in Detroit. So pretty much, And I got to know every process of how you actually do something for real. It's not a Super 8. You have to take something to a lab now. You now have to be careful with the negative. Your sound has to go to a completely different place. Then you have to put everything back together again. And I got to see every aspect of it. And Sam was unsatisfied with college, and so was I. And I had been working in the industry, so I was like, I knew where we could get stuff. I knew how to rent equipment now. I knew all these companies. And Sam was itching, and we met another guy, Rob Tappert. Sam Ramey and Rob met in uh, at MSU, and he had a he had a degree in economics. So Rob was the money guy. Rob and Sam got to talking about you know what would it actually take to make a movie, and so we did a bunch of three way phone calls of, okay, what would it really take? So I explained you know I had a handle on some of the cost and where to get some of the equipment, and then Rob was more tuned into you need a lawyer to draw up a piece of paper that you then show to investors and they sign it and they give you money. You know, you create an entity to make a movie. It was very daunting to us, but we thought, if that's what it has to be, that's what it has to be. The idea of leaving Detroit to go to the West Coast was too daunting, too mysterious. We thought, let's make our own movie. And that's kind of how the professional part of it started. Was the script for Evil Dead already in place, or did you just work out the business end first and the script came later? I think Sam wrote a little short story in college... Uh, about the Necronomicon. And then he sort of pitched us that idea. And we were we, we felt like if you're going to make a uh, your first movie, it should probably be a horror movie, even though our amateur movies are about 90% broad comedy. We, we were very familiar with Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Halloween, and none of those movies had any anybody 
no-name actors were in any of those movies, any of the classic 70s, 60s horror movies, Night of the Living Dead, nobody. So we knew that we could we could get away with that. Horror movies, you don't need fancy cars and clothes. Um, a lot of times they're in one location. We had a cabin, so that made it cheaper. So we did everything we could. We told investors that we have similar story elements, these other successful horror movies that we're not reinventing the wheel. Um and we made a short movie. We made like the ultimate Super 8 movie. Now that we were the we were really experts at making Super 8 movies, we made a half-hour movie called Within the Woods, which we could show to investors and go, see, it'll be like this. It'll be scary like this and gross like this. And it worked. You know, we, we sat in these high-level executive offices uh, showing them a dumb little Super 8 movie and suckering them out of, you know, some money. What the hell happened to you? Cheryl, what's the matter with you? Did something in the woods do this to you? No, it was the woods themselves. <laughs> They're alive, actually. The trees. I want to leave this place right now. Cheryl, there's nothing out there. Trees do not attack people. Ashley, will you drive me into town or not? What, right now? Yeah, look, sure, sure, I'll take you into town, but just listen to what you're saying. I don't care how it sounds. I want to get out of this place right now. Okay, you can stay somewhere in town tonight, huh? When did you start to get a sense that Evil Dead was more than just a movie you made with your friends? When did you get a sense of, oh, this is something that people really like? Um, when it when it finally opened, uh, no U.S. distributor would touch it. Um, they they wouldn't have any, anything to do with it. So we found a foreign sales agent, the great Irvin Shapiro, who helped us. Irvin Shapiro goes back to doing publicity for the battleship Potemkin. And he's got sketches from Picasso, you know, that he traded <laughs> for bottles of wine. This guy was one of the first people to ever bring motion picture, foreign movies to the States. He was involved in Screen Gems early on. It was a company that brought movies. And so he's one of the founding fathers of the Cannes Film Festival in France. So this guy knew how to sell movies overseas. And he had represented um, George Romero. So we thought, well, wait, George Romero, that's the same type of movies. Let's, you know, we didn't want to go to somebody who didn't like these type of movies. So he says, well, it's not exactly Gone with the Wind, but I think we can make some money with it. So he we started this process with Irvin Shapiro, and England was um, an early bidder, and they got it, Palace Pictures. But what they did is they didn't treat it like it was a low-budget horror movie. They treated it like it was this big sensation and showed it at the Prince Charles Theater in London with these giant blow-up photographs of all of us, made it look like the Poseidon Adventure, you know, and it it hit. When you think of making movies, you think of Hollywood. Big studios, big names, big bucks. But what if you're not in the big time? What if you live near Detroit, don't have a lot of money, but do have some great ideas for a movie? If you always cheer for the underdog, you're going to love Renaissance pictures of Ferndale, Michigan. And the three young men whose very first film won them a standing ovation at the Cannes Film Festival. Bruce Campbell, 24. An aspiring actor with a And when you were working with Sam Raimi on this project, did it ever occur to you that this guy will be directing some of the most profitable blockbusters of all time? No, but we knew something was different about him. I knew it since the second I met him. He and I saw him in eighth grade. He was sitting on the halls of um, my junior high school, West Maple Junior High. I uh, dressed like Sherlock Holmes playing with dolls. <laughs> and I was like, A sign oh, of greatness. Okay. Sam was always crazy. He would dress like Sherlock Holmes. Sam was crazier than any of us. And some of his physical comedy was better than any of ours, too. So he was really this 
bizarre, crazy guy who would do, you know, I'd go to answer a question. I was in his radio speech class together. That's what started our relationship. I'd go to, you know, answer a question. He's sitting behind me. He'll take his pencil, put it in the back of my neck, and start to increase the pressure during the course of my answer to see how long I could last without cracking. We had that punishment relationship right from the start. You worked with Sam on uh, Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, uh, an army of darkness, but then you also appeared kind of in in cameo roles in um, all three Spider-Man movies. What was yeah. it like working with him on a big budget studio movie? It was versus... great. It, it was hilarious, really. I, I thought it was funny just to watch so many people kissing his ass. Just made me laugh. <laughs> you, you know, I'm like, wow. And you know, he always wore these rumpled suits, or he'd wear ties. He wore ties from early on, starting with like Evil Dead Two or something, even probably Crime Wave, and. Um, so he would um the only difference now was that he he wears an expensive rumpled suit. But still a rumpled suit, but <laughs> now it's a nice one. But and the trick was finding the stage. You know, I was wandering on the the Sony lot and I asked some guy with a walkie-talkie, "Hey, where's the where's the stage for Spider-Man?" The guy got he laughed. He goes, "What do you mean what stage? We have 12 stages that are Spider-Man." I went, "Well, uh where's the wrestling ring?" "Oh, that's stage 5." So I go in there. There were 1200 extras. And my whole day, the first day of shooting was just, I would ask some assistant director, hey, can you find out if I'm in the shot or not? And it was that sort of, it was like, now we're in the military. You had to ask like 87 people to get a question to Sam, and then maybe you'd get an answer back. So it was, it was big. It, it jumped up to the next level. But once we get into scenes one-on-one, it's always the same. Sam pokes me with a stick, and, you know, we have a good time. And he makes fun of me in front of the crew, and I let him do it. Because it makes him seem like he's a little, you know, Rasputin character. So it, it's a fine relationship. If he can withstand just three minutes in the cage with Bonesaw McGraw, the sum of three thousand dollars will be paid too. What's your name, kid? The Human Spider. The Human Spider. That's it. That's the best you got. Yeah. Oh, that sucks. The sum of three thousand dollars will be paid too. The terrifying, the deadly, the amazing Spider-Man! My name's the Human Spider. I don't care, get out there. No, he got my name wrong. Get that was my guest Bruce Campbell as the wrestling announcer in Spider-Man. We'll hear about one of Bruce Campbell's worst fan interactions after a break. Plus, I'll ask him about the rumored Evil Dead remake. It's the Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. And by VG Kids, printers of t-shirts and other merchandise for touring bands, radio stations, websites, festivals, derby girls, record labels, national brands, and all the rabble-rousers, hackers, and entrepreneurs in between. Online at vgkids.com. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jordan Morris, in for Jesse Thorne. My guest is the cult icon, Bruce Campbell. Bruce, it's, it's funny to hear you talk about kind of your early days making Super 8 and your kind of early days in the community theater, like, you know, people doing a lot of different jobs and people using kind of resources that they have from their non-creative life. Yeah. Um, it seems like a lot of the projects you still do still kind of have that 
quality that and i and i mean this in the best possible way a kind of a homemade quality to it is that an aesthetic that you feel like you're just drawn to it's an aesthetic yeah yeah absolutely because the first evil dead we had the most control on anything we've ever done before or since you know we we had it structured with our limited partnership that the investors actually couldn't even set foot on the set unless we let them they couldn't read the script they had no say in the editing nothing we were the general partners. They were the limited partners. So we were responsible for taking their money. We were the movie experts. They were the money guys. Uh, and we've never had that much, really, leeway since. Sam's a big, powerful director, and I bet he has a lot of pull on what stays in and what doesn't. But you know there's going to be... There's a lot of executives who are dogpiling those screenings, all with opinions. And, you know, it gets old because... You make Super 8 movies, all you're doing is screwing around and making movies, and you put it together, and some of them are great, and some of them suck, but that's just the way it goes. And so getting back to that is something I've always wanted to do. You know, a couple years ago, I finally made a movie on my property, and it was the closest to going all the way back to the Super 8 days as we possibly could. I got all the old schmoes, lined them up, and, you know, we made a silly little movie. Are you talking about My Name is Bruce? Yeah, I built a little western town on my property. Um, you know, I, it's funny because I actually would like to play a clip from that movie. Um, okay. <laughs> I should say in this movie, uh, My Name is Bruce, which you directed as well, yeah. uh, you star as actor Bruce Campbell. Yes. Who uh, is kind of down on his luck. I think you and your dog share belts of whiskey. Yep. Out of the same bowl. <laughs> right. Uh, so, you know, you're, you've, you've seen better days in this film, and then you yes. kind of get recruited by this small town to kill a monster. The clip I wanted to play is from kind of early in the film where you are coming off of a movie set and you get mobbed by a group of fans. So, okay, sure. Uh, let's hear that. Hey, guys, how you doing? Here you go. One for you. Oh, One Mr. for Campbell. you. Mr. Campbell, yeah. when you were in Army of Darkness, uh-huh. when you're stuck down in the pit, how'd you get your shotgun back? I'll talk to the writer, man. I don't know. Hey, when you worked with Ellen, did you gay? No, but your stupid question did. Why did you do Serving Sarah? Why did I do Serving Sarah? For the money mouth breather. Why else? Love her. God, what is that stench? Here, it's called deodorant. Look it up on your internets. See you, boys. Late for a soiree. Uh, so, Bruce, in, in this movie, we kind of get a little portrait of your fans. Uh, yeah. Tell us about how... Tell us about Bruce Campbell fans. What are they well, like? Well, Bruce Campbell fans, it's the whole gamut. Uh, it's mostly guys. So when I tour, my wife is like, have fun with it. 22-year-old guys, Bruce. You know, it's never women throwing panties. It's it's guys who are, are hyper-interested in certain things. And and it's funny that there's someone who's so passionate about it, but in many cases, they'll come up to me at the table at a book signing or whatever, and they won't even be able to say anything. And I'm like, you waited two hours to not say anything? I mean, this is your chance. And so I, I try and pull stuff out of them. But a lot of fans will hit me with the obscure thing. One guy says, you know... Where'd you get the shotgun in Army of Darkness after the pit? And I'm like, I didn't write the movie, you know? I, I don't, I can't answer that. And um, the rudest fan I ever met was in a wheelchair. And so I had to have an ode to the guy in the wheelchair. He's a veteran, you know, the most sympathetic person you can think of. But the guy was, he was so, he was relentlessly rude. And I remember thinking that I wanted to push him in front of a bus. So in the movie, I'm like, I'm going to push this guy in front of a bus, and let's just see what happens. Hey, Mr. Campbell. Yeah. Give me your autograph. Got a pen? What, you ain't got no pen? 
What's your name? Gerard. Okay. Hey, go, Gerard. Have a good one, buddy. Yeah, hey, hey, hey. That's Gerard with a G. Hey, go, Gerard. Have a good one, buddy. Yeah, hey, Mr. Campbell, come on. You got a, a more recent picture than this? Let me ask you something. Ever see Rawhide? Yeah. You like it? Yeah. Well, then you know you got to keep them doggies rolling. And then now here's the risk of making a movie like making a meta movie like that. There are there's a guy in Iowa who's like, wow, that Bruce Campbell, what a what a jerk, what a crappy life he's got. That it really confuses a lot of people. It's awesome. Um, now it's funny you you kind of uh, you know in this movie you have a certain persona, and I think it's definitely the one that people associate with you. Uh, very sarcastic, quippy, a lot of one-liners. Right. Um, do you ever feel? pressure when you are just out in public meeting people to kind of present that persona well it was funny i was walking through an airport and and uh i was kind of you know i was in a travel mood it was kind of a lousy travel day happens to all of us right Mm -hmm. guy walked by he goes bruce campbell let me shake your hand and i look at him and i was like maybe i will maybe i won't the guy goes that's exactly the answer i wanted and he kept going so I was just crabby enough for the guy instead of being like some sweetheart. Oh, let me meet your kids and sign everything. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jordan Morris in for Jesse Thorne. My guest is Bruce Campbell. These days you can catch him as the wisecracking Sam Axe on the USA Network's Burn Notice. Here he is on the show on a stakeout with a fellow covert operative played by Gabrielle Anwar. We've been here two days, Sam. Face it, this guy is not calling the shots. He has Christmas lights hanging in July. He may look a little bit like Michael, but there's no way he's capable of killing a CIA officer. Yeah, well, I don't think he's capable of setting a table. Yesterday, I found a brochure about raising alpacas for profit in his trash. So let's scrap this cloak and dagger and go have a little chat. Fee, you know the drill. You want to find out who this guy works for, you hang back and watch. (sighs) Now, Bruce, kind of on the surface, your TV show, Burn Notice, seems really, really different from the other stuff you do. It's a, you know, a very slick, high-budget, hit cable TV show. Yeah. Um, Does it seem different to you? Do you know what's weird? I am more typecast by my fans than the industry itself. Because I've made a French film. You know, I I was in a film called La Patinoire. So I, I can say I've been in a French film. I've been in a lot of Disney stuff. I did a Western show for a year. And so... Um, I think from the inside of the industry, I don't get, I don't feel like I get channeled as much. But the people who only watch what they watch, because there are fans of the Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. who will not watch the Evil Dead movies because they're Western people, they're not sci-fi. So I kind of find when someone goes, "Hey, you're the Evil Dead guy," that's because they really just watch horror movies. They haven't seen like Sky High or Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, you know, where I spend the other half of my time. I look at my paychecks. They're all from Fortune 500 companies. Everybody thinks like Bubba Hotep is this cute little indie. Well, it was. It was made for a very small amount of money. But who was it distributed by? MGM. So the nice thing is even corporations like little tiny movies. Um, now, now how, what, is there anything that connects Burn Notice you know, thematically to your other work? Well, I would just say that my, the character I play, Sam Axe, he's a former Navy SEAL He's kind of a smart ass and a, you know, he's a wise cracker and 
sort of a ladies' man. So it's a bit of a continuation of the trash-talking sort of thing. But I, I naturally am drawn to that. If this was a spy show with serious, squinty-eyed characters, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have touched this thing with a 10-foot pole. But you talk to the creator, Matt Nix, you see what he wants to do. I felt that it was a completely unique take, because I hadn't done TV in about 10 years almost when this pilot came up. I was like, ooh, television, ooh, ooh, it gave me the shivers because (laughs) of some bad experiences that I had had before. But when I read it, I was like, wow, this is about the the human version of spies, that Michael Weston... Sure, he's going to blow something up with his girlfriend, Fiona, but he's got to go fix his mom's garbage disposal after that. And I like that. You know, you got to have that. Otherwise, if you don't care about the people that are getting shot at, then none of it matters. Yeah. And uh, now you and they have made an entire uh, feature length film about your character. It's kind of a prequel. They did. did. I kind of bullied them into it. Yeah, you know, that's what I was going to ask. Uh, it's called yeah. The Fall of Sam X. It's on DVD and Blu-ray now. Yeah. Um, uh, was this something that y- the creators had wanted to do since the show started, or was this something that came about through some other means? It's part me, part Matt Nix, where um, I was trying to think of other other things to do to be part of the show. I wasn't really, I don't really want to direct any episodes because it's, it's television is too brutal. But uh, Matt Nix said always he had said that he he saw Army of Darkness and he said to himself at that time, he goes, I want to write a movie for that guy. And then I showed him my name is Bruce. And he's like, if Bruce can write a movie for himself, then I can write a movie for the guy. You know, I'm a better writer than that idiot. So I'm going to write a movie. So it was it was a little of both. I certainly encouraged it. And, um, and Matt made it happen. And fortunately, Fox agreed to finance it and USA agreed to air it. So. That's that's like getting, you know, two different countries to like get rid of their tariffs and stuff. You know, Fox talking to Universal. It was it was tricky, but it happened and um fortunately someone showed up to watch it. So it wasn't a complete waste of time because that would have been a drag. <laughs> go through all all that hassle, go to Bogota, Colombia, shoot up in the Andes Mountains and blow crap up and then it not work. So Bruce, I mean obviously you're you're filming another season of Burn Notice right now. Any plans to go back to a more Bruce Campbell-y, Super 80-type movie in the near future? Well, we made enough money with My Name is Bruce, so I can probably con somebody into, like, all I really need is, like, $2 million. And it always kills me when I see these budgets of people just randomly, they'll toss off a budget about $200 million. I could make 100 movies for that. And I did the math. (laughs) If I made 100 movies for $2 million each, you know, 30 of them would be pretty good. And like 10 of them, I think I can make 10 really enjoyable movies. Maybe one classic. I don't want to be arrogant here. No, of course Maybe not. Maybe a low-budget classic. One out of 100. That's a fair, <laughs> fair, fair odds. You know, and okay, you blew it on about 25 of them. Those are the numbers. And I don't know. I, I want that money. I want to sneak into a studio and just put a hose in and siphon off. You know, and go run it under the under the fence, out to the parking lot, and into my car because I only want a trickle of what they have because that's all you really need. I'm I'm amazed that, like, I'd love to figure out how to spend two hundred million. Yeah, do do you, you know what I mean? If, if how much should we pay that guy? I don't know. Give him whatever he wants. If, What's he want? He wants fifty thousand. Ah, give him a million. That'll teach him. Um, now, Bruce, I, I think it's almost kind of time to wrap things up here and. 
And I know this is kind of it's a see. It's always about the budget, right? It's always about the budget. Um, and this is this is a public radio show, and, and fairly high minded, and, and not the place for kind of fanboy speculation. But uh, mm-hmm. I would never be able to attend mm-hmm. Comic Con again if I didn't ask you. Um, word on the street is that there's maybe a, a future for the Evil Dead franchise. Uh, anything you can tell us about that? Yes, the remake is happening. Okay, the remake. The script has been written. Uh, Diablo Cody, interesting choice, I would say, is doing another pass at it. And uh, we have a fabulous uh, filmmaker from Uruguay. And uh, someone else will be playing your part, right, Ash? There's no Ash character currently. Oh, okay. This is a, this is a, you still got your characters in a cabin, but it's a, it's basically almost like you could say a, a different group of people found this evil book. And, you know, it's going to have, it's going to be like putting on an old, a comfortable shoe, but, you know, it's a different deal. whole different deal. I'm too old for this movie. <laughs> so you'll just be attending as a fan? Yeah, I tried out for it. Sam's like, get out of the room. <laughs> well, uh, Bruce Campbell, it's been a damn pleasure talking to you. Thank you. I don't say damn because it's uh, this public radio. Right. This is high-minded, as you say. I wouldn't be so crass, but I appreciate your enthusiasm. <laughs> I, I thank you. Um, I, I am very, very enthusiastic about our guest today, Bruce Campbell. Uh, he's an actor in several uh, cult classic horror movies. He can be now seen on uh, the USA Network and the television Burn Notice. The feature-length movie Burn Notice, The Fall of Sam Axe, is on DVD and Blu-ray now. That's it from the Sound of Young America this week. I've been your host, Jordan Morris. You can catch me on MaximumFun.org's comedy chat goof-around podcast, Jordan Jesse Go. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our editor is Nick White. Our intern is Paolo Balboa. Our music is by Dan Wally. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, where you can find past episodes of this show, as well as several other programs, such as Jordan Jesse Go, Judge John Hodgman, and Stop Podcasting Yourself. I'm Jordan Morris, and it's been a damn pleasure. See you later, fancy pants.